Hey guys, and welcome to episode 7 of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. It was great having Ben on last week, talking about everything from stress, getting sleep, um, and different approaches to dieting. This week is a little bit different. This week we have Robin Das uh, on. He is a nutrition lecturer based up in UCD. He's also a health and performance nutritionist with Das Nutrition Consultancy. He's currently working with uh, Dundalk FC in the League of Ireland, and he's literally only started that, so we're talking about a little bit of that off air. Uh, I know everyone's kind of, most people are kind of big keen on sports, so that'll be interesting to hear a little bit more about that. And one of the big things that Robin has done recently, or a couple of years ago, was he became f- fully qualified with Mac Nutrition, and that's one of the courses that I'm studying at the minute. Um, so, welcome Rob to the show, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, thanks, Shane. Really appreciate you uh, inviting me on. It's always nice to be able to talk about you know our shared interests and working with people. So I'm um, looking forward to this conversation. Brilliant. Uh, so the, kind of the first question is for the audience that may not know much about you and that don't follow you on Instagram. Um, is there is there anything that you want to kind of talk about yourself or kind of anything that you feel that you kind of want to embellish on or anything like that that I kind of said already? Um. Not really too much other than what you said. Uh, the only thing, I, I've kind of moved away from the lecturing at UCD, but that's kind of like, that's just part of, uh, you know, how things go with uh, when you're advancing your career and moving forward. But uh, it was a good time to, to work there. I uh, really enjoyed all the, the students that came through. And again, a lot of them have been, you know, in touch since then. A lot of the guys are actually uh, current PTs in the different fly fits and a few others around the area. So it's quite, kind of nice to see how you've been able to help kind of the future or the, the present of a flourishing fitness industry. So that would be good. Good. I know I work with a couple of your ex-students anyway, and they were, when, I, when I kind of mentioned that you were coming on, they were singing your praises. So that, uh, so that, was, that was great to hear. Um, kind of with the Mackie yeah, trip. Nice. Yeah, it's, not, it's really nice, especially when you're kind of... Some people don't really get a relationship with their lecturers. I find that because I went to DIT and it was a big hall. You don't really get a relationship with your lecturers. So that's nice that they kind of had that approach and that was that's great feedback. Um, so in relation to the kind of the Mac nutrition side of things, is there? Did you feel that Martin had a, Martin McDonald uh, had a different approach to when you were actually in college learning how to to become a fully qualified nutritionist yourself? Yeah, it's actually something that uh, I probably talked a little bit about before with him and even just giving feedback. Uh, a lot of what I did in Master's in Nutrition was more geared towards uh, disease states and epidemiology, so understanding how uh, or why you know diseases exist and what might be their, their root causes and things like that. But it was never about the practicalities or working with people and individuals on how to, I suppose, change their lives or bring about change in the ways that were kind of taught on MNU. It was, the big thing for me was the application of the, I suppose, the the practical outworkings of how you work with an individual. Um, So some of the stuff that you come across, you might have come across uh, in one of the modules is just, you know, conversation skills and working in a room with a person um, communicating, listening, listening out for cues that tell you a little bit more about the situation than just um, I ate bread for breakfast, I had you know tea and crumpets, all that stuff. It's more what can you get from what the person is 
talking about body language, um, asking more questions that tease out a little bit more of the, the scenario. So it was all that that was a big difference versus just doing my master's. And I think that comes from, I suppose, Martin's history and uh, experience uh, working with so many different populations and individuals. Yeah, no, I think what the working with different populations, I think, is the key thing that I think of because when I'm doing the course is because he kind of relates to, like, the Incas, he relates to different tribes, all that kind of stuff, so he makes it, like, no one person the same, and he gets that set out fairly early on, which is great. Uh, and that's one of the biggest things that a lot of people think that it's, like, a generic approach when I personally feel that it's a tailored approach to most people, to everyone. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, like, one of the things I kind of, I think one of the big things at the minute that's out there is kind of the tracking of the calories. Um, yeah. And people using my fitness pal. Some people have a love-hate relationship with it. Some people just have a pure hatred for it. What would be your kind of your thinking on my fitness pal? And like, if you if you're anti anti um, my fitness pal, what would be your approach to take if clients didn't want to proceed with that kind of route? Uh, well, just straight off the bat, I'm not a I'm not a tracker. It, it's it's one of the things that I I tried. You know, I did it for maybe three or six months, and you know, it was fine. But it's not something that I particularly enjoy. I like food, but I I just can't get my head around tracking stuff. Now, that being said, I do have clients that track, and they are perfectly fine doing that. And um, it's just something that. that I don't particularly enjoy doing. For for most people, I think it can be used as a tool when, you know, during that initial phase of, of starting it, just primarily just to act as kind of like a digital food diary. Um, now, people can write it down for themselves, like old school style food diary, but it can be used to give them an idea of, hey, I'm actually eating a lot more than I may have been considering I was previously. And I think that can be one of those eye-opening situations where then a person is like, okay, cool, uh, I'm eating too much overall. What can you help me to do there? Or it can be about, uh, say, like a simple thing for a lot of people is just to try and increase protein intakes throughout the day. And um, when you ask a person for a, a recall, a dietary recall, that is one of the first things that can come up. Um, Similarly, if you have someone give you their, you know, MyFitnessPal data, you know, straight off the bat, you can kind of get an idea of, okay, here are here are a few different places where we can introduce more protein. So if you find that breakfast is an area where protein intake is a little bit lower than desired, you can just introduce it there. Or late in the evening, maybe dinner or a pre-bed kind of thing for an individual who's want to try who's trying to gain as much muscle as possible. Those would be kind of the areas where I would see it being useful. Long term, I don't know. I don't think general population needs to track with an app long term. I think there are plenty of ways to just habitually have a healthy dietary pattern that adheres to the goals that you have that doesn't involve having to input data all the time. I just don't think it's um, a good long term practice for living. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you in that regard. I know from working face to face with clients and online with clients, um, a lot. Of, some people have kind of 
they put their wall up as soon as you kind of mention my fitness pal from tracking and stuff like that but i think it's a it's a good kind of starter point for someone to kind of get used to seeing how many calories how much protein is in a person in like a chicken or how many calories are in a pack of rice or something like that it's a good starting point but i 100 percent agree with you it's not long term and generally the guys that are coming to me are kind of for 12 or 16 weeks but what I try to do is not a drastic weight loss unless they kind of ask for that, which is generally what they won't ask for, is to try almost change habits. And that kind of leads into my next question, which if say if someone came to you looking to lose, say, 20 pounds in, say, six months or seven months, what would be the f- maybe three or four main habits that you would change with that person? Um, yeah, I, I, I think this is a pretty... It's a pretty common occurrence. Um, I'm not saying you, you've stoned me. I'm just trying to think about what, what do I usually do. Well, I, I think the the first the first few are just the something simple, um, like increasing activity. So non nutrition related is just look at you know you know arbitrary activity throughout the day. Can you can you be more active throughout the day? Can you you know when you come home after work instead of sitting straight down to like watch TV or Netflix or whatever, can you um, offset that by going for a walk? That would be something that I would encourage, first of all. Then the next thing are all kind of your healthy dietary pattern um, characteristics. So let's try and increase um, a spread of protein intake over the course of the day. So making sure that most main meals are protein-focused or have an adequate amount of protein. So that, you know, 20 to 40 gram range, depending on what the goal is. Then after that, it's just bulking those main meals out with vegetables. And then snacks in between, if they are that kind of person, would be, again, just focusing on protein-based or, you know, plant-based or fiber-based options. And all, all that works to do is, you know, make it, is, is stem hunger. That's primarily a big issue for people. It's transitioning from a diet where perhaps hunger is a big issue to it being less of an issue so that the, the what happens after that is they don't eat or feel the need to have to eat as much. Therefore, that facilitates a little bit of weight loss. If we have that kind of, if you're saying like a six-month time period, then that should be plenty of time for a person to become almost a self-regulator in that as well. They, they figure out for themselves, oh, you know, this protein source here um, and at this time as well was really useful. Let's continue doing that. I found that perhaps this time, this thing at this time didn't work. Can we change that? And so they become masters of their own journey and you're pretty much just helping to guide them along within that kind of six month period. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. It is, I think some people think that it's like a magic formula that when someone comes into a PT they kind of give you a calorie range and some people can be a little bit impatient with how their weight loss and stuff may happen and some people can kind of get disheartened with weighing scales and stuff like that is there any mechanism or is there anything that comes to mind when someone kind of comes to you and this weighing scales isn't going down they are tracking their calories on my fitness pod or whatever method it may be. Is there any mechanisms or habits or tools that you would use other than kind of the weighing scales that may help someone? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think what's happened before with a few like clients is there's this kind of like not a stalling phase, but it, it, there are other things happening 
outside of what the figure is showing on the scale. And a lot of that is to do with maybe like performance, training performance in the gym, maybe a little bit of muscle gain, all that kind of thing. But usually I will try and uh, calm that individual down, if you will, and just ensure them that the process is leading them to where they need to get to. And lo and behold, usually what happens is maybe five or six, seven days after them saying that there's no change in the scale, there's no change in the scale, there might be a significant change. And then, you know, attitude changes, then moving forward again, you see that kind of consistent pattern. And it, for them, again, it's that kind of learning curve where they recognize patterns for themselves. And they say, okay, this happened before, we move on like that way. So it's getting them to look at other characteristics that might be, um, I suppose, demonstrating progress outside of just the scale. So training in the gym, are you getting stronger? Are you, you know, pushing um, through older plateaus that perhaps were there from before with uh, training performance? Uh, are you noticing an improvement in just overall energy levels throughout the day, work performance, all that kind of thing? So it's not just about the scale, which is a nice thing to, for a person to be able to see while it is one of those things that is just a hard thing to get a person out of from that mindset is the only measure that matters is the scale when in fact there are other measures that are equally as influential and as important. And what would, what would those measures be? Well, we might use something like a couple of like girth measurements of like, you know, upper arm or um, waist circumference and maybe like thigh as well. And sometimes those can be indicative of change which then just serves to provide reassurance for the person. Um, so a lot of the time those are like skinful measures where like tape measures are going to indicate change as well. And if they see that, then there's usually some accompanying scale change within the time frame that I mentioned as well. Okay. And I know, I know I, I've had this face to face as well. When, when you have someone who's just on the scales and the weight's the same, but they're losing a lot of kind of inches and stuff off their, off their body. Can you, can you explain that in layman's terms for everyone out there for me, please, why that happens? Well, like there could be, I suppose there are, there are a number of reasons within that kind of like instant snapshot. So say you have a person who has come into you, they've been training with you for a couple of weeks. They come into you at, let's say 6 PM in the evening. Um, that day might not be, that time might not be the best to take the scale measurement as the overall picture um, because of the time, for example. Um, there's going to be food that's been eaten throughout the day, it's going to be in the digestive tract, there's going to be fluid intake, that's going to mask anything that you might be seeing. So as much as that person might have lost weight in the lead up to that weigh-in for that particular training session, uh, it's not going to be shown there. Uh, then again, there's the there's the goal. Um, if a person is coming to you originally from like a, an untrained state, and their goal is to kind of recomp, or, or you know, their goal is body recomposition, probably there's going to be some changes uh, to muscle mass. So that again is also going to be masking the change in scale weight. So as much as they are saying, "Oh, I want to lose weight," chances are there's going to be changes in. Um, fat mass, which is what you're going to see with the, say, the inches lost in areas that people are concerned about losing from. So that's going to be something, which is why, again, it's multiple measures, um, say, you know, 
take the scale as one, take uh, take measures for another, take performance as another, and um, take how your clothes fit as another. And if the majority of those, if say three out of four, so the, the only one being the scale that's not moving in the positive direction for them, if three out of four are all showing positive results, then overall is a net positive. If you get them to track their weight consistently for three or four days after that, you might see that that returns or moves in the direction that they think or that everything else is actually showing. So those that would be my explanation. There's always going to be, I suppose, food fluctuations or the amount of food that's been eaten. Um, time of day is always going to be a big thing. Um, training goal or whatever direction they want to move their training in is going to be an influence on that as well. And what about kind of the, the likes of stress and cortisol that has effect on kind of the weight fluctuations and stuff like that? How much will that impact on someone? Because everyone's, everyone now seems to have a pretty hectic schedule. We're literally talking off air that we're like we couldn't really relax over Christmas ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, how much would the kind of cortisol have an effect on kind of the weight fluctuations? Well, I think stress can definitely mask um, weight loss, which again is another reason why something like skin fold measures can prove useful in that situation. It wouldn't always be my first thing to jump to, um, but if in the situation of long-term where we had a person who was like, I'm definitely doing everything that I am, I'm asked of, and you're still not seeing that change in, in scale, and then we start you know, maybe going a little bit deeper into what's going on outside of training, outside of eating, and it, it is to do all of these kind of stresses or external stressors, but I think it can be something that play a role. It, I would just be mindful of saying that if a person isn't losing weight, it's it's or if a person isn't seeing a change in, in weight, that it's definitely just going to be stress-related and cortisol-related. Yeah, no, I, that would I, be the only caveat there. Yeah, I agree, I agree with you. And I know kind of you're dealing with general public as well. And what would you see is kind of the biggest issue facing people who are looking to lose weight? I'm, for me personally, I would say it would be kind of everyone wants a quick fix. We seem to be in now of an era where everything's on demand. We can literally touch our phone, our bank balance comes up, Revolut, all that kind of stuff. What would be the biggest issue facing people at the minute that you've been dealing with personally? Yeah, I think that's that's a... A perfect example of um, how we are, are, whether intentionally or, or knowingly, um, our mindsets have shifted from perhaps individuals or a society where gratification is delayed a little bit to now where no one has that kind of, everyone wants instant gratification or instant results. So that's definitely one thing. The other thing, and it's something that, that came up today. Uh, I don't know whether you read like the health supplement, the Irish Times, but some days it's really, really good. Some days it has like really level-headed discussions. Other days it's not so good. And one particular thing was talking about you know how to you know what should people in their twenties do in order to be healthier. And it's got really great advice side by side with stuff that is just terrible, stuff that is incorrect. So. There's this comment about how individuals should definitely do some resistance training because, you know, it's part of society at the minute and whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. But then it goes and said, and oftentimes males adopt like a higher protein supplement diet, which we know can cause, you know, constipation and uh, like brain. 
breakouts and even kidney damage. And that's just, like, unequivocally, that doesn't happen. Like, we know that doesn't happen. Um, it's been proven time and time again. Uh, it's now actually considered amongst the medical community that it doesn't cause kidney damage, it doesn't cause renal failure, it doesn't exacerbate kidney um, conditions. Yet that's a prime example of someone who will read it. Ireland has a population that are, you know, still significant readers of a print newspaper, and people read that. Parents will read that, say it to the kids, say it to, you know, whoever. And, and that's one of the things that we need to move away from. It's the it's same community. Same are taken as gospel versus the totality of what's actually being talked about. And it's just it's just those pervasive myths that seem to keep coming in and out, and it's just something that I think is always going to hold us back. And if we don't do a better um, job of communicating why it isn't the case and why there's a benefit to doing certain things like that, I think that's going to be the the big thing for people to that we'll always have trouble with. Yeah, I think I think the kind of the journalism out there. I know James Smith has a big thing against the Daily Mail, which is fair enough because they make a lot of sweeping statements. I was kind of flicked into something last night on the BBC, and they were kind of talking about the the ten thousand steps, oh. uh, monitoring it on your the new watches that seems to be the phase of the fad at the minute, compared to literally going for three brisk walks, and. Um, a day, uh, but I, I put the 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 results from that that kind of results or from that was that there was thirty percent more fat burnt in with the with the three brisk walks than there was with the ten thousand steps. What's your kind of take on that kind of research? I know it's kind of quite out of context, but yeah, no, I remember. I think that came up. I saw it a while back, and again, I'm not one hundred percent. Um, familiar with that like particular um, research paper that I think it, it comes from but I will say this I think whatever the you know whatever is deemed more important or better I mean 30% better fat loss what does that even mean relative to what like 30% of what like hey, like could be like you know to do with anything there but I think the, the big issue there is it doesn't matter if people choose to do three 30-minute brisk walks or three 20-minute brisk walks versus 10,000 steps. The point is that people should still be more active, and it shouldn't be a, a case of capping activity at 10,000 steps or three 20-minute brisk walks. I think when we are so used to having guidelines, they become what is like the almost the highest ladder of what you have to do instead of the lowest barrier of entry to activity. I, I just see that within, you know, family members and things. It's like, oh, well, I, I did my, my 20-minute walk today. It's like, cool, what were you doing for the rest of those, like, 23 hours and, and like, 40 minutes? Yeah. Those are the kind of things that we have to think about. It's great to have watches that track our steps, but I think just aiming for 10,000 and being satisfied there, it shouldn't be a thing of, oh, cool, I can rest. I still think you can be as active as you can outside of 10,000 steps, outside of 320-minute brisk walks, because I think it, it's really going to make a difference. Uh, just sedentary behaviours are, they're becoming more and more, the more we learn about them, the more we realise that, hey, this is actually a bad thing. 
So if we can fight that as much as we can and not list those as just this is what you should be doing, they should be as the kind of lowest barriers aim for here, but you know, progress on top of that. That's the that's the idea. I really I really like that answer because that was one of the things that kind of came into my head last night when they're kind of saying the ten thousand steps. Like it should be the minimal barrier entry, like aim for ten thousand steps and go go forward. Like it's kinda of like a yeah. football team just aiming for the Champions League when they should be really trying to win the premiership or something something similar like that. Yeah, yeah. Or um, even like if you consider like clients in that that you train. Like like, you know, it's that kind of say on the bench press, it's that, you know, the the hundred kilo barrier, like once you have the two twenty plates on either side, you're like, Oh well, that's it. And it's like, No, no, that's all I wanted. I'm happy with that. Yeah. But you know, there is progression. Progression can go like how about working towards like a repetition max with those ten, or with, well, with the, with that hundred kilos instead of just being like, no, no, I'm happy here. I don't need to do anything more. It's like there are, you know, our bodies can adapt. I think we should be focusing on trying to do stuff to show that we can adapt and to benefit, make make I suppose get benefits from those adaptations. I think a lot of people, I I know myself, when you kind of mention the family members getting out for their twenty or thirty minute walk, they they don't really realize about the that your body would adapt that you kind of almost you have yeah. to put on extra little few minutes extra push yourself a extra little harder at the end in order to kind of for it to work or to, for it to continue to work I and mean, that's one of the things a lot of people forget anyway and a lot of people i've kind of trained anyway don't even don't particularly seem to realize that so i'm glad you brought that up yeah. um one of the things that martin not mcdonald on mac nutrition kind of talks about is the myths and I was kind of so uh, one of them was kind of close to home regarding the gluten and stuff like that. But there are other ones that he mentions about kind of the protein, the organic, the creatine, the carbs, and the gluten. Uh, would you be able to kind of kind of talk about those a little bit more and kind of like that protein isn't? You mentioned protein earlier, so saying like one of the things is that people think that too much protein is bad for your kidneys. Would you be able to put that uh, explain that a little bit more to kind of the listeners, please? Well, I, I think it comes into the whole idea that it, it, it's just almost like a game of Chinese whispers. Uh, at some stage, somewhere, there probably was a, or probably was a, a little bit of research done, probably in an animal model, so in mice, that um, you know a group of mice were given a super physiological dose, so a human dose of protein for a model organism that's much smaller than humans, and what happened was there was higher stress placed on the kidneys. That data was put out there. And the scientists didn't like aren't necessarily gonna say, Oh, this is this is what's gonna happen to humans. It's when perhaps a group of, you know, I don't know, people who are unfamiliar with, with interpreting uh, research from animal models into human physiology, then take that and say, see, it causes stress in kidneys therefore protein doses of 20 grams or more or beyond the rda will cause stress on the kidneys i think that's that's kind of what's actually happening here instead of being like well mice have a different physiology to humans why would we expect the exact same thing to happen with a normal dose of protein so that is kind of where i think that one comes from um and i think one of the big things to be able to explain that to people is to say, look, all the data that we have on this um, originally is points to kind of animal models or mice, rodents, uh, demonstrating that. There's nothing in uh, human trials or human research that shows that it places 
the same kind of stress on the kidneys and causes damage. Um, in fact, we have you know that, all the uh, Jose Antonio uh, research looking at like uh, obscenely high doses of protein, so 4.4 grams, and there's no changes in, in health markers there, which is, again, indicative of the fact that this myth isn't true. So, I mean, people say, oh, well, long-term. I think he had a long-term study that came out last yeah. year. For It was a year-long of, like, that high-protein dose. And, again, no negative health markers or no negative impact on kidney function. So, and I know seal, seal. That kind of links the kind of the protein stuff. I know everyone, there's a lot, a lot of the companies out there that you see in the shops and seeing the, the the vending machines and gyms and stuff like that. The kind of the protein bar craze sure seems to be upon us now. Um, would what would you kind of say to someone that was struggling to hit their protein intake for the day? So say if they need to get on say 130 grams of protein a day. Would you recommend getting the protein bars, or what's your opinion on protein bars in general? Uh, well, I suppose my, my first, the first thing I'd say is, you know, don't stress about it if you don't hit it. It's, you know, at the no, end exactly. of the day, like if if you're doing, if you're having a higher protein intake consistently within a range, within that you maybe like one fifteen, one thirty, one ten, you'll you'll be okay. You'll get to your goal. It'll be okay. Um, from consistently utilizing protein bars, I think with, and this is what happens with, with I suppose, with any product, um, with the increased demand in it, the, I think there's a, there's an aspect where the quality of the protein in the bars decreases or something changes. And I think you can see that within the ingredients. If you look at it, it's a lot of them are using more like collagen based protein, which some of them aren't because it's cheaper to produce and it means you can get a bar out, you know, and I think it, it does change the consistency a little bit more and people can have a better tasting bar, but the quality of protein is a little bit lower. So obviously look for ones that would have milk-based protein as their first line of ingredients. Um, do I think people should use them to top up their uh, protein targets? They can. It's certainly, there's certainly not any negatives to it. Um, I would say just be aware that they still contain adequate calories um, versus, say, a scoop of whey and some water, which would just be equally as good enough for hitting those protein targets. And again, a little bit cheaper too. I think it's just a matter of uh, qualifying that, yes, they're suitable sources, uh, not to be used ahead of, say, something that's higher quality and not to build your entire diet brain. That would be my advice. That's great advice. I think that it is more prevalent. I'm kind of seeing them more and more in kind of in the gym that I work in. Anyway, that they're all in the machines and stuff like that. So, I know some of my clients this week alone have kind of asked me about the protein. So I'm I'm on I'm on the the side that you're saying as well. Um, kind of back to kind of the myths and stuff. One of the ones regarding supplements is kind of creatine. Yeah. Creatine is kind of the most researched supplement out there, and it seems to get probably the worst abuse um regarding kind of its negative connotations i uh, like I, I know a lot of people on social media in the fitness industry are trying to put that to bed uh can you kind of explain kind of what happens when you take creatine the benefits of creatine and if there is any negatives of taking creatine at all uh well i mean let's, as you said it's, it's the most researched uh like negatives, it's more, I've probably perceived negatives, maybe even um, 
the idea of people changing and doing something and taking creatine and they might think, oh, you know, like they put on this like perceived water weight kind of thing, um, which which doesn't happen. Um, I think the benefits, I was going to say the benefits outweigh any, any like disadvantages, but there aren't any real disadvantages to it because it's so useful across the board. Um, certainly for anyone who's interested in performance, um, it's that like increased uh, time to fatigue, um, you know, it gives you that extra energy, not so much that you're going to, you know, uh, I think the biggest, one of the biggest things that people think about creating is it's going to make you look bigger and straight away. But what's actually happening is, well, what it does contribute to is give you better quality uh, training production or um, gives you the ability to train better, to do more volume training, which then, if you're doing all the other things right, will make you look better. That way. It doesn't directly result in you looking better. And then, like from performance side of things, team-based sports, anyone involved in any sport, I think, should be taking it. Um, now, this isn't me being like, go out and take it liberally, uh, particularly for those of a higher um, or more elite sport background, because you do have to get it from a tested by sport, batch-tested kind of um, uh, provider. That would be my only caveat there. But apart from that, I think the benefits on endurance performance are proven. The benefits on strength performance are there. Um, any sort of sporting activity, an individual should be, if they want to get better, um, even if it's from their training uh, leading into their performance, they should be taking it. And it's not a case of taking a huge amount. It's like that five grams a day is what you need. You don't need to load anymore. Five grams a day is, is entirely necessary. And would you take it sporadically? Would you kind of go on for like, would you take it for, say, would you do it in cycles? That's the word I'm looking for. Would you do it in uh, cycles? No, I, I think just five grams a day when, you know, if you're consistent with it, if you have it nearby, it's just part of that kind of ritual almost. And even on even on non-training days as well? Uh, yeah, if I, honestly, for me, if I remember, yeah. I usually, like on non-training days, I, I maybe take it with like my biggest meal or the meal that I know I'm close to home because I know it's there. So yeah. breakfast or something like that. Perfect. Yeah. But even outside of that, I, you know, I'd even just take it if just with some water and that'd be, that'd be it. And I know one of the other biggest crazes that's going and going on at the minute is kind of the gluten, the gluten free and celiac and dairy free. Me personally, I'm unable to process gluten. I'm unable to process lactose, yeah. uh, but it's only in certain types. I can't process the likes of cheese, yogurt, or cream, so I tend to stay away from those. And when I when I do, I just feel viciously ill. So it's it's just one of those things. Well, regarding kind of, would you have any advice for someone who is looking to get tested for have all those allergy tests, or do you believe in those allergy tests at all, or what's your kind uh, of opinion on it? Like, I think allergy tests on on I think you know I think it's because people are becoming more concerned about their health. Uh, the rise of allergy testing giving way to then people saying, oh, this is the way you should eat, I think is something that, again, needs to stop. Uh, allergy testing in itself, certainly the IG, the you know, IgG stuff is, is, isn't going to be something that's working. Um, if someone is concerned that they are celiac and definitely have negative 
symptomology towards uh, or from ingesting like gluten, then yeah, absolutely get tested. I think it's 100% necessary to see. You no know, one's going to suffer on saying, oh, I'm not sure. I think if, if, you're, if it's that bad, get tested and see. Um, what we do see a lot of the time is just people being maybe not, well, being foolish with their carbohydrate intake or uh, maybe, you know, the whole thing around um, like those short chain carbohydrates that don't digest as well or don't get absorbed as well, causing, um, you know, IBS-like symptoms. That's another area to for a person to look at. And um, certainly with, again, something relating to the example with the protein bars, with the rise in the intake of protein bars, you do have to consider the, you know, the polyols and short-chain um, carbohydrates that are in those bars that can elicit those same kind of negative responses from like a digestive um, function or uh, negative uh, feeling in, in the stomach, in the gut, that kind of, not bloating, but just, oh, I don't feel well in my stomach, that kind of thing. But outside of that, um, if a person thinks that they're lactose intolerant, again, it might be worthwhile looking at, uh, obviously, finding out for one thing. But secondly, look at the dose of milk that you're having each time, uh, because a lot of the time we do have that, you know, lactase persistence or persistent enzyme, which does decrease with with age. Um, it is population specific as well, but it's something that is a dose response issue. So if you drink a lot of milk at one go and find that you are uh, you have these um, you know lactose intolerance like symptoms or you feel like you don't respond to it well, it might be just a case of having to lower the dose of milk per serving that you have and that will alleviate any symptoms you're experiencing. I think that's just something that people should be aware of um, instead of saying, oh, well, I knew we weren't supposed to digest it. So that documentary that told us so. so uh, yeah, like the, the documentaries. I know, I know there's a few documentaries out there that kind of are, I've, I've definitely told you so anyway. Um, the other thing that I was, kind of, a couple more questions. I kind of know if you, have someone coming in, so for me personally, I have people coming in to me at like half five in the morning. What would you suggest to them regarding eating breakfast before the training or would you recommend eating in the evening beforehand or what would you kind of say? I know my particular take on it would be if you're not a morning person and your body doesn't really want food at that morning, I would say have a little bit of carbs or porridge or something the night before what would be your kind of recommendation on that side of things? Uh, I, I probably agree with what you said there. There wouldn't be too many things to add. Um, I worked with a couple of uh, swimmers who, again, they have like they have two sessions in the day, sometimes three, and usually their first session is, you know, that's stupid o'clock in the morning. And they always ask me, oh, like, I just don't feel like eating something at that time, but, you know, I always have to feel I always have to have something before training. And I like I I just asked them kind of a battery of questions of like how do you feel when you eat something and then have to go train. It's like is it do you feel good or do you feel bad? Do you feel it kind of sits on your stomach a little bit? That kind of feeling of it's not digested when you go train. Depending on that answer, I sort of give uh, a recommendation. So sometimes I'll say just have like a protein shake some water. Like that's kind of something that I would say. I don't think I think. 
thing. It's it's for most people that's tolerable, and even if it is more kind of like endurance and movement based training, and if it's like resistance training, there's not that much kind of movement around the place that's going to cause discomfort. Um, and I think obviously if um, you know if you're doing that sort of training, I think it's a wise decision to have a little bit of protein beforehand. If you know you're not going to get anything for a while afterwards. But that would be kind of what I would recommend for some people. If if it suits you to have something, give you the time and um, again, if it doesn't if it isn't something that interferes with how you feel, then go for it. If it doesn't interfere with the quality of training, then go for it. I know one of the other things that people kind of, one of the other myths that's kind of out there is the, the myth about fasted cardio. Um, and I know some, like back in a few years ago, that seemed to be the biggest thing. For me personally, I prefer to train fasted because I just, I'm, I'm as you said, I'm not awake to kind of function at that time. I'm kind of training, I'm kind of with clients and stuff about kind of nine or 10 in the morning. And then I'm kind of yeah. getting my, I have my cup of coffee as my pre-workout. And then I'm ready to go. But for someone who may not be that oriented, what would you say in that regard? Well, I think it's good to to like qualify the the statement. I think it's a it's a matter of preference versus benefit. Uh, if a person is doing it for the idea of a perceived benefit, I don't think it's the right thing to do because the data would say that it doesn't provide any massive difference over. Uh, fed state cardio, if you will. So if you if you've eaten something and you do cardio, it's not going to be worse for you or better for you than if you've done fasted cardio or if you choose to not eat something. Um, so that's that's something that I, I would I I often say to people is don't do it because you think there's a benefit to it. Do it because it's something you prefer. So in your case, if it just doesn't suit your schedule to or how you feel to do a training session or to do some sort of cardio uh, training bed, then absolutely, like, why would you? But if it's, as I said, a case of, well, this is a lot I've been told, and my goal is fat loss in the end, and I've been told that this makes fat loss or enhances fat loss, then I will do this, but that isn't the case. I think I've got a couple of, um, like, particularly if your, your training is endurance, and, you know, people have different... <laughs> responses to or you know how they feel like taking in food recommendations why sometimes one to four hours like some people can do well with food in in their system and um, cl- as close to one hour before uh, or within tra- within a training time while other people it has to be within four hours uh, i started doing a lot more running over the like the final few months of 2018 and i tested out to see how i responded to like food intake within kind of 60 minutes all the way up to you know four maybe five hours before a training session, and I just found that for me, close to almost five hours, I just felt much better. Yes, I was going in thinking, oh, I'm a little bit hungry, but performance-wise, absolutely fine. Versus say maybe two or three hours where I was going in, food was still I could still feel it when I went on sort of longer distances, and just made performance a little bit lower because I was uncomfortable. So those are some of the, the considerations there. As I said, it comes down to perceived benefit versus preference. Yeah, I think that's a great answer because I know a lot of people are kind of asking uh, me recently, particularly my clients. And one of the kind of the other questions I got asked, I think it was yesterday, 
was regarding kind of does meal timings matter for kind of fat loss. I know there may be a, a slight little benefit for muscle gain or might slight alteration, but with fat loss, would is there do meal timings matter? Um, I think they matter from a preference point of view. Again, like in the in the grand scheme of things, it's that you know. I'm not saying it's become a cliche because it'll never really be cliche because it is just facts. But that caloric deficit is going to be the main driver of that goal. So whatever way you do that is entirely up to your own preference. If you find that you prefer to have your meals timed exactly or at a specific time, go do that. Um, at the end of the day, it's going to be the end result of if all those timings add up to a, benefit or add up to a deficit, um, it's going to be the biggest factor. So timing doesn't affect fat loss. I think... And then I think the last question I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of give you an example of a scenario regarding clients and stuff like that that I kind of come sure. across or something that may help someone down the line is kind of to say if I've got an 86 kilo female who's 27 years of age she's she's gone through the whole slimming world she's done all those the, the diets the various different diets and she's she's had success with them but then she's rebounded really hard after them. The inches are falling off, which were kind of what we spoke about. The weight's not going down. The habits have improved to a certain point that she's kind of gone off less processed foods, less takeaways, that kind of thing. Uh, the sleep is getting better. The stress is a little bit high. Um, and then what would you kind of recommend to that person to kind of stop them kind of getting frustrated and getting kind of ultimately maybe giving up overall since they've come so far like this person per se has kind of gone from a couch six months ago to doing so well getting to the gym two or three days a week what would you kind of say to that person uh, well first of all i think i do all the i suppose look at the, the soft skills side of things I'd, I'd reinforce um the positives of everything that's happened up to this point um up to the point where this individual has gotten has moved from not being active, not looking after health, to now taking an interest in looking after health. Uh, so that would be the first thing I do. Then the second thing I do is I just ask what's worked for you before and why. And then just implement whatever's worked within a reason. Now, obviously, if it's like, oh, I starved myself seven days a week, obviously I'm not going to say, well, that worked, let's go do that again. I'll be okay. It'll be, you know, do no harm sort of thing, but it'll be along the lines of, you know, try to increase those protein intakes if necessary. Uh, look at strategies that have worked before. Um, just tease out what's been the best option. Now, within the example you, you told me, um, what appears to be the big issue is what to do when the, I suppose, the dieting phase is over. So, with that in mind, I'd, I'd make sure that we had a I, I, we had either uh, an exit strategy in place or we'd construct phases of of a diet. So rather than just say, all right, you're going to do this for six or 12 weeks or 18 weeks, whatever, it's like, we'll do this for four. We'll establish um, some good um, you know, continued patterns, uh, create a bit of a, um, a decrease in, in weight and fat loss. But then we're going to take a break. You're going to have maybe 10 days where 
things may just go back to like a, a regular maintenance calories um, if if there's tracking involved or anything like that and just to give that person a break but to instill some of the better strategies that we know work for um i suppose that kind of lean habits sort of thing so still do all the things that have worked but just take the foot off the pedal a little bit rather than being like all right you're right on your own go and solve all your problems again so that they can learn how to I suppose, live within the lifestyle that they have rather than having to act the same year-round within a, a, maybe a more aggressive um, diet approach. And then after those two weeks, after kind of taking the photos off the pedal a bit, you can go back into another phase of dieting or, you know, a different approach that perhaps, you know, they see they might gravitate towards. So maybe, maybe it's a, a fasting kind of protocol where two or three days out of the week, and they're just fasting through until like lunchtime. So you've created like this habitual and spontaneous deficit of calories, which might mean they can approach their day-to-day activities better while still adhering to their goal. Then, or, or it could be a case of maybe it's the five, two approach. So five days they eat like a normal and, and overall dietary pattern of just looking at like a, a thing of like hitting a specific number of protein and base meals and lots of veg then two days is a little bit more aggressive i know i've seen a good bit of success doing that with one or two clients that have had almost that similar journey that you've described in this example where they've tried everything they've been given the run around by you know all these different practitioners and i was like well you know what to do the big issue is i suppose the long-term adherence to that and it just becomes a bit of a a war of attrition. So why not take out the attrition by putting in stock gaps where there isn't that kind of attrition and you can have a break from it. So it's it's establishing like exit strategies which are basically weight maintenance strategies for a period of time and then move again until you get to that goal. And all the while it's just encouraging all the good habits that have been built up um, and in just reaffirming that being healthy doesn't have to involve all these massive rules and regulations. There are things that you can do that add to your life. Um, like to be healthy should involve things that have added to your quality of life, not taken away from it. So I really like that answer. I like the the, the idea of kind of an exit strategy for someone because some people may not they may be so stuck in that particular moment that they may not see the end insight if that makes any sense and then yeah. kind of making sure to instill the habits um some people forget how far they've come they've literally been sitting on a couch having takeaways three or four times a week going out in the on the on the weekends and stuff like that a lot and then they've they've been coming into the gym two or three times a week they're getting their steps up they've improved their sleeping habits they've improved their their meal prep and everything some people just forget that they've they've come so far and they just get bogged down with the scale so that that's phenomenal advice um the i know i said that was the last question but something just came into my head regarding supplements during the supplements um are there any supplements that you would say i know kind of there's that we've spoken about creatine we've spoken about protein and whey what's your kind of two cents on bcaa's i i i don't know i just think 
for me, it, it's always going to be a case of like it, it, whey is cheaper, more beneficial, um, more versatile. Just use that. Like, there's no point if your you know, protein intakes are high enough. It's just going to be like fancy water at the end of the day. Um, fancy water that you know has a different taste to it that costs you more than it should. Um, like, I just don't think BCAs are are, are necessary. They're, they'll probably always exist because of marketing, but I just think that perhaps if a person you know, is doing all the right things already, um, you know, is within a, a higher protein range, um, training hard, uh, then I think, I just don't think it's necessary. I think it's, it's well, I think someone said redundant calories, um, redundant and, and expensive calories, so. I like the term fancy water, though. I might, I might, I'm going to rub that on you. Yeah, go, go for it. fancy water. I, I mean, I, I've heard people use it as like, mixtures and drinks because they're concerned about hitting protein targets like if you want to do that cool but i mean you're not you're not actively uh, making gains doing that but if it helps you like sleep better at night cool uh, but i just you know i just think for again general population no need um, maybe there are specific populations that can benefit somewhere at some stage maybe maybe the like you know, ultra distance triathlete people doing multiple ultra distance races in a week or something, they probably can get a benefit from it. But outside of inside of that, no, I don't think so. That's amazing though. You've you've given me I've learned so much from talking to you for for the last what is it, about nearly about fifty five minutes. So it's 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 been amazing chatting to you, Robin. I know you're due to come in to fly fit in Dundrum. What dates are you due to come in or do you have your dates settled up yet? Uh, the dates are the nineteenth of January and hopefully the twenty sixth. So the nineteenth um we're basically talking about um, you know like everything you need to know about fat loss. So how to do that successfully, how to do that healthily and most importantly how to um, create long-term change with that so that you don't have to keep hopping on every other thing that keeps coming in the, the, the pipeline. And then the second one on the 26th, uh, both of them are at one thirty, as far as I know right now. And the second one is about basically muscle gain. So what nutrition considerations are there to basically make 2019 the year you achieve all your, I suppose, muscle gain dreams, if you will. I know. I'm. I'm. Look, I'm going to pop along to those and get, pop into Dumb Drum and say hi to the guys as well. I really awesome. appreciate you coming in or coming on online on to the podcast today. I wish you best of luck with the new role with Dundalk. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. It's, I know it's, it's pretty exciting. It's, it's really exciting. I know they're only going back into preseason yesterday or the day before. So best of luck with the season with those guys. I really appreciate you coming on, and I will see you on the nineteenth in Dundrum. All right. Thanks, Shane. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.